Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will, put, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall, cut cur- he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a funny passage we read at Christmas time. But I wonder if it sounds a little different reading it in context. Uh, we're going to need wisdom, so let's pray that the Lord would speak to us. Father, we pray that this morning that you would speak to us by your word. We thank you that it's given to us out of love. It's given to us so that we would understand you and know you, that we would know the depths of your grace. Father, as we hear your word, we pray that it wouldn't simply be something we understand, but that it would change us by the power of your spirit at work in it. All for the sake of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a context and when you, where you practice drills a lot of some sort or another. Uh, you know, when you're a kid... You have fire drills at school, things like that. You do them, you know, every so often. Uh, When I was in the military, we had all sorts of things that we drilled all the time, practiced all the time, Uh, different types of emergencies, right? Whether uh, whether it was, you know, a problem in the engineering plan, whether it was a problem problem with some sort of damage to the ship, whether it was a battle scenario. There are all these things we drilled over and over and over again. And the point is that you learn what's most important. The point isn't that you're going to always experience the exact same scenario that you drill. The point is so that you learn the truth. You learn the the reality that is most important, right? The, The things that you need to really value, the things that are essential. So that whatever emergency comes your way and however complicated or different it is than any other thing that you've practiced, you know what to do. You know, football season's just started up. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to practice your two-minute drill, right? So everybody understands what we got to do in different scenarios. And this is the sort of thing that, that we do in, in, any kind of, uh, in any kind of drill, right? As we, we learn what really matters. We learn what's most important, what's most significant. And the deal is here, and we'll talk more about it in a second, The king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, has forgotten what's most important. That God is with them. So we're just going to think this morning about God being with us. A forgotten reality 
but a forceful truth. Forgotten reality, but a forceful truth. Now, the background of this is important, and I intentionally didn't ask somebody to read the beginning of it because it gets very complicated, but we can unpack it, I think, in relatively short order. You may recall that Israel, at this point, is divided into two different nations. There's a northern kingdom that is most of the tribes of Israel, and they basically have kind of left worship of God behind, more or less. And then there's the southern kingdom, and there's still the heirs of King David on the throne in the southern kingdom, Judah. And uh, in fact, the division is referenced at the very end of this passage in verse 17. It talks about the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The guy who led the revolt that took the northern kingdoms away is from the tribe of Ephraim. It's referencing that moment. Uh, so the kingdoms are divided. And what has happened is the Assyrian Empire is on the rise. Let me see if I've got my backward geography correct. In the sort of northeast of Israel on the Euphrates and the upper part of what is modern-day Iraq. And the Assyrian Empire is growing and growing, and other smaller countries are starting to kind of band together. And northern Israel and Syria, which is right above that, have, bound, have, have made a, a pact together, and they are going to attack Judah in the, in the south. They want to replace Ahaz with a puppet king. So there's this bigger picture of what's going on in terms of a rise of an empire, and then there's these other smaller kingdoms that are shuffling around trying to shore up for their own safety. But they think that Ahaz is a liability, and sure enough, they're right, because what Ahaz will end up doing is calling on the Assyrian Empire for help, which is a huge mistake because they will come in, but like any other empire, they don't want to leave. This is the problem, but in the background, even than that, and if you, look, if you look for the historical background of this, you can find it in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, you will find that Ahaz has also left the worship of the Lord behind. He's starting to practice like the tribes that they had destroyed, that Israel had displaced. He's, so he's not, only, he's not only messing with the temple, he does a bunch of things to the temple, just kind of arranging it like he thinks is a good idea. But he's also even participating in child sacrifice, even his, some of his own children, uh, which was uh, a gruesome hallmark of the nations that Israel had displaced. Ahaz isn't a great guy. Um, he's forgotten that God is with them, and he's run after all these other gods. And the practical effect of that is that he is also going to seek help from all these other, you know, from an empire, from another nation. So that's all kind of the background. I know that's kind of a lot. Uh, but it's in that context that God says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign that I'm still really with you. And make it as deep, Sheol is a word for the grave, uh, hell. 
Go as deep as that or as high as the heavens. In other words, ask big, and I will give you as big a sign as you want. And what does Ahaz do? Do you notice this in verse 12? This is very, this is very cunning. He feigns piety, despite the fact that he's actually worshiping all these other gods and the horrific things that he's doing in the worship of these other gods, he knows that Deuteronomy 6 tells you, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he tries tries to feign piety like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that to God. Despite the fact that it was God that told him, ask me for a sign. And God's answer to that is fine. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. You don't want a sign, you're getting a sign. There, a, this is the famous verse, of course. The virgin shall conceive, in verse 14, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is confusing. You see, on the one hand, the, the name puts its finger on the problem, right, that Ahaz and Israel in general has forgotten that God is with them. He's, that's the name of this child that's going to be born. But this child, of course, is a sign of judgment. I know what you're thinking. We just sang the Christmas song. We just sang that Advent tune about Emmanuel, and I think it's talked about somewhere, and we'll talk about that. (laughs) But in Isaiah, in chapter 7, it is a sign of judgment. Because this is how it unfolds in verses 15 through 17. It says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So to to be able to distinguish good from evil means, means he's grown. But to eat curds and honey while, I don't know, maybe that sounds not like a bad snack. That's the kind of stuff that, that's the, that's, there will be an abundance of that kind of stuff because the land is going to be empty. Nobody's going out and collecting honey because there's nobody there to do it. There's going to be abundance of dairy because there's nobody there to feed with it. That, I mean, that's actually, that's how it goes on into verse 16. Right, the land of the kings will be deserted and the Lord will bring upon you and your people uh, and upon your father's house. So days have not happened since Ephraim departed from Judah. So that was the division we talked about. The king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is coming for you. And this is bizarre. This is hard. This is really hard to get your head around, right? That because we're so used to thinking of that idea of Emmanuel as being this great promise. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in here, in this context, it's a sign of judgment. And in fact, it goes on as you get into chapter 8, you find out that Isaiah has another son. Actually, at the beginning of this passage, Isaiah already has a son. His na- and he's mentioned, his name is Sha'er Yashuv. Just strips off the tongue. It means a remnant will remain. 
It, it's a, he has given his son a name that implies all of the judgment that he's already been predicting. God's going to judge, but a remnant's going to remain. Then he has a second son, and that's probably who it's talking about, because later in chapter 8, at the end of verse 8, it'll talk about the second son as being Emmanuel. But his name, and this one really trips off the tongue, is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. We'll just call him MSHB for short, because I can't keep saying that. But the, in the NIV translates that uh, poeti- a little bit poetically as quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. It's a name of judgment. This is just, I mean, this is strange. God is saying, I'm going to give you a son. And the, the word for virgin here, and there, there's a ton of scholarly ink spilled on this, doesn't have to actually necessarily mean somebody's a virgin. It means a maiden, someone's young. In this Hebrew context, that's what it means. I don't know how many people have written articles about that, but uh, it's a lot. Anyway, in other words, it's fi- it is a little bit flexible in its meaning. And certainly in the context here, what they understand is that Isaiah has a son, and by the time he is old enough to be a man, all of this will come true. And it does come true, and we'll get to that story when the Assyrians finally show up on their doorstep uh, later, but that's what happens. You see, what's going on is they've forgotten that God is with them. And the sign of this child is a reminder of the consequences of forgetting. Because when we forget that the Lord is with us, we run after all sorts of things to shore up our sense of control, our sense of stability. And we will grasp at all kinds of things. If we're not confident that the Lord is with us, then all kinds of things will become our source of confidence. We'll look for anything that sounds worth it. I mean, we will grasp for power. That's obvious, isn't it? This is why we're so intensely interested in politics right now in our country is because we're not confident in anything else that is in control. And Christians are really guilty of this, of being so invested in our political sphere because we just want a sense of control and power, and we have forgotten that God is with us. God is always with his church. Uh, We will grasp for power in our workplace. We all know people with petty kingdoms that they've set up. Maybe we have some of our own, if we're honest. 
we all know how we will grasp for power in all kinds of different settings. And we will convince ourselves that, well, what we have in mind is really what is good. And so we just need to do what it takes to maintain control. The ends justify the means, after all. Uh, we, we run after money. Money, of course, is useful. And I'm sure some of us are maybe struggling financially that certainly money helps. But money never deals with our insecurity. And you can throw a lot of money at insecurity and it will swallow all of it. Even if that's your bank account, you can penny pinch and you can save it all up and it will still not convince you that you're secure. We run after so many things because we refuse to believe that God is with us. There's so many things that we could run after and here's the deal. We run after them because we don't really trust that the Lord wants what is good for us. Because God doesn't promise you that you'll get the, every little thing you want. That's not what He promises. And it's been a temptation back to the biblical times to try to think like, well, what if I'm really good? And what if I really do everything God wants me to do? Isn't He going to give me the things I really want? And here's the deal. What He promises is not to give you your desires as they are. He promises to give you a heart like His to desire the things that He wants. And so the reason we don't trust that the Lord is with us is because we're not really sure we want what He gives. And we, maybe we want it. But can you throw in that promotion on top of it? I want what you, you want to give me, Lord, but can you give me this much in my salary? Can you work out this or that problem in my life? Can you give me what you promise and also let me have it all? And he doesn't promise that. So what do we make of this? And this is where it's, it's fascinating to think about how the New Testament picks this passage up. Because if you flip to Matthew 1, you do pick up this passage. And here's how it goes. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which 
is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is like one of those many moments in the New Testament where an Old Testament passage is quoted and you think, what what does that have to do with one? Sometimes it seems like it makes sense, and then you go back and you read the passage in its context in the Old Testament. You think, what's happening here? Like, how is this? And bear with me, because this will pay off for you in the long run, but it also pays off, especially in this passage. One way to understand that line, the line when Matthew does this a lot, but certainly other New Testament writers do as well, when they say that something was done to fulfill something, they might mean, look, this, this prophecy was given about the Messiah. It was all, always about the future Messiah. End of story. <laughs> in fact, as you get into Matthew 2, he quotes a bunch of passages in Matthew 2. And one of them is Micah 5, too, which is, the one, which is the passage about Messiah coming from Bethlehem. And that's a future one that's about the Messiah that was expected, and that's how it is. But actually, quite often, that is not what they're saying. See, Matthew will do something later. I know this is a little complicated. Keep, keep hanging with me. Matthew, in chapter 2, will also quote from Hosea 11. You don't have to know what all these are, but he'll quote from Hosea 11, which, is, which says, out of Egypt I call my son. In Hosea, he's simply talking, he's simply making a historical reference back to the Exodus. He's not predicting anything. It's not a future prophecy. He also quotes from Jeremiah 31 uh, about Rachel weeping for her lost children, which is about Israel going into exile. And Matthew says that is a fulfillment, it's a, that's fulfilled when Herod is murdering all these children. In other words, those two don't seem to be about a future prophecy. Rather, what they're saying is that we see, what Matthew's saying is, we see in Jesus the pattern that has already taken place being reiterated in a bigger way in Jesus' life. Do you, understand, do you understand the difference? So sometimes they're saying, look, that was always a future prophecy and Jesus is fulfilling it. Other times when they say he fulfilled it, they mean we've seen this pattern before and Jesus is doing it in a new and bigger way. And that's almost certainly what's happening here because to Isaiah and to Isaiah's listeners, Emmanuel was the son that he had that was a sign of judgment. But when Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit and Joseph's told, told that he, she's going to have a son whose name means the Lord saves, Matthew can't help but think, this is Emmanuel. This is a sign that God is with us. But it's not a sign of judgment, it is a sign of promise and of hope. 
It's funny. It's funny that Matthew picks up on that, isn't it? Because the hope of Israel always was supposed to be that God is with them. And finally, when God the Son comes in the flesh, that's fulfilled. In the biggest and fullest way possible, God is with us. That is the good news. God is with us. He has come in the flesh. God is with us. He has come not merely to show off His power, but to become like us and to give His life for us. To save us from our sins and to rise from the dead for us. God is with us. And when He has returned to the throne, He has sent the Spirit so that God is with us. So that even now, the presence of God is at work in your life to apply everything that Jesus has done. God is with us. God is with us. So ask yourself this morning, what am I afraid of? What are you afraid of this morning? Don't answer aloud. What is it that pulls your heart away from the Lord? What is the area of your life, the particular issue, the particular incident, the particular relationship in which you're tempted to think, God doesn't see this? God doesn't know. God isn't with me. And then stop and think of all that God has done to be with you by sending His Son in your place. And think about the work of the Spirit in your life. And maybe this is a foreign thing to you. Maybe you're not a Christian and you haven't thought about it. Maybe you're not quite sure where you belong. Think about this. God has entered in for you. He has come in your place. One of the reasons we come back to that message over and over and over and over and over again is because we forget. In most of our most of our difficulty, not our circumstances, but our own internal struggle, is because we forget that God is with us. But He has come in the flesh. And He is raised from the dead in the flesh. And even now the Spirit is at work. So God is with you. And whatever those circumstances are, however difficult they are, and I know some of you have very difficult circumstances, God is with you. And even if everything is going along smoothly, don't forget, God is with you. Jesus has come for you. He is the promise fulfilled in a way that Isaiah and Isaiah's listeners probably never understood. 
God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are with us, that our hope is not in ourselves, it's not in our own ability to navigate our circumstances and to figure out what we're supposed to do. But rather, Lord, we praise you that you are with us because you have sent your Son, and your Son has sent his Spirit. And one day, raised to life in the Spirit, drawn in through the Son, we will be with you, gathered around the table that we'll celebrate in a few minutes. We said this morning, Lord, that it is lovely to be with you. We thank you that you are with us. In Christ's name, amen.